From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking with filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer. His film, The Look of Silence, has been nominated for the Oscar for Best Documentary. It's about genocide in Indonesia in the 60s and the survivors and perpetrators today. Well, our opening question today is, who is Hillary Clinton? A little later, we'll ask Gary Young of The Guardian and The Nation. But we start with Katha Pollack, poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation magazine. Her most recent book is Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. And she also wrote the introduction to the new anthology, Who is Hillary Clinton? Two Decades of Answers from the Left. We reached her today in Vienna, where she's spending the year. Katha, welcome back. Oh, thanks so much for having me on the show, John. Well, I know that in 2008, you supported Obama publicly rather than Hillary Clinton, but but apparently that's not the only time uh, you supported the man rather than the woman running against him. Yes. Well, I thought it would be interesting to uh, retrace my steps through my many um, electoral mishaps to the extent that I remember them. and. I was surprised to discover how rarely I had voted for a woman candidate because I'm now being charged, of course, with vagina voting and, you know, all you care about is that she's a woman. And it was interesting to me how hard I tried to really look at the candidates' positions and their histories and the likelihood that they would win and all like that. And uh, somehow the woman always lost out. Which of these votes for men over women do you regret? Which would you do over, starting starting with Obama in, in 2008? You know, that one I would leave alone. I think Obama has done as well as possible. But if Hillary had been president, it, it wouldn't have been so different. It might not have been different at all. You know, they were close enough that he made her secretary of state. And yet at the time, this is the thing, at the time, it seemed like they were worlds apart. And he was all hope and change. And she was business as usual. And she was accused of racism and all this kind of thing. And, you know, in the course of a campaign, all kinds of the candidates are made to look more different than they really are. But if it had gone the other way, it wouldn't have been that different. A a case where I do feel I did make a mistake. In the 1992 New York State Senate primary, I voted for Bob Abrams over Geraldine Ferraro. I didn't like Geraldine Ferraro. Why? Because she was for the death penalty. Well, really. You know, in retrospect, she was a strong feminist. There were at that time two women in the Senate. And yet Bob Abrams, he was the very liberal attorney general of the state of New York. And I ended up voting for him. Because he was against the death penalty. Really, the Senate doesn't have too much to do with the death penalty. And I feel like that really was a mistake. She would have been a good senator. She she would have been one-third of the women in the Senate at that time. Um, And um, it was this kind of purism with these constantly shifting goalposts that I noticed in my voting. And then I noticed in other people's voting, too. Like, I have a friend who will never vote for Hillary because Hillary has the wrong position on Edward Snowden. 
Well, I ask you, first of all, is any president going to say, oh, sure, Ed, come home. All is forgiven. You're great. I don't think so. There are thousands of issues that a president has to weigh in on, and you can always find one or two or 10 or 20 that you don't like. But I feel like somehow when it's a woman, these things count for more. And I want to say one more thing about that race, which is that Geraldine Ferraro, Geraldine Ferraro was a very vibrant and energetic personality, and she would have campaigned in a fantastic way. And Bob Abrams hardly campaigned at all. Then he accused Al D'Amato of being a fascist, and it was all over. So it was really lose, lose, lose all around. Women often say uh, these days they don't support Hillary because she's not likable or because she's too ambitious or because she's too stiff. What's your response to these women? My response is you're not voting for a best friend. You might not like Bernie Sanders either if you had been exposed to him for 30 years the way you've been exposed to Hillary Clinton and had her filtered through the the right-wing spin machine. The point is to vote for somebody that uh, seems to you like they'll be a good leader for the country, that more or less has the politics you like, and although some people would disagree with me, I think considering electability is quite important. And you also say in your new column that it's an accepted fact of American political life that people often vote their ethnicity or race or geography, and you ask why should women be different? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the whole history of American electoral politics is voting blocks, is ethnic voting blocks, racial voting blocks. You know, uh, racists are the people who say, oh, look, all those blacks, they vote, they just vote. They just voted for Obama because he's black, you know. Well, first of all, why shouldn't they? Um, But they correctly perceived that Obama represented something for black people in general. And that's why after eight years, going on eight years, in which he has not been able to do very much for the black community, they still think he's wonderful. More women are for Hillary than are for Bernie. There are some, some women who do think, I want more representation. And this doesn't mean voting for Sarah Palin. It doesn't mean voting for Margaret Thatcher. It means voting for a pro-choice Democrat. And there are women who are willing to do that. Um, and the Democratic Party itself is, is uh, disproportionately female. Yes. Yes. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like we notice whether, whether women are going to vote for their gender, but we don't notice that men vote, tend to vote for their gender. Uh, You've written a lot about Hillary over the years. We have a new book from The Nation titled, Who is Hillary Clinton? It has eight of your pieces, including the introduction. The most fascinating to me was your review of her famous bestseller, It Takes a Village. Do you remember the title that you gave that piece? Village Idiot. That was your title. Village Idiot. Yeah. Well, you know, I was... Back in the Clinton era, things were very different, and I found that book sort of mediocre and namby-pamby and family to family values-ish and very small-bore solutions, quote-unquote, to very big problems. Let me quote from your column on Hillary's book, It Takes a Village. You wrote, quote, HRC prays a lot. She's a good mom. She thinks people should abstain from sex until they're 21. 
She opposes divorce. I know I'm not supposed to take these notions seriously, any more than I meant to gag at the weirdly Pollyannish tone of the prose or wonder if Sunday school could really have been her formative intellectual experience, close quote. I got to say that's pretty great writing, but a pretty devastating picture of Hillary. Yeah, well, um, maybe she, it turns out she doesn't believe in divorce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe I maybe I didn't take those views seriously enough. <laughs> so this book for which you wrote the introduction, Who is Hillary Clinton? It takes its title from a piece written by Barbara Ehrenreich. She answers the question. She says Hillary is, quote, a sleek, well-funded, power-seeking machine encased in a gleaming carapace of self-righteousness, close quote. Wow. Wow. Wow, indeed. Well, you know, power-seeking, that's what they always... I mean, what politician isn't power-seeking, I ask you? Don't say, you know, oh, power-seeking Hillary, unless you're going to say power-seeking Bernie and power-seeking John Edwards and power-seeking Obama and power-seeking all the rest of everybody who's ever run for president. Barbara Ehrenreich is a friend of mine. I admire her greatly, and she's a great writer. But she did vote for Nader in Florida. I, I just feel like that was a big mistake. And that says something about the way she sees electoral politics that is quite different from the way I see it. The book is titled, Who is Hillary Clinton? We heard Barbara Ehrenreich's answer. What is your answer? I think Hillary Clinton is a liberal Democrat with all the faults and virtues of that position. I think she she had a, a pretty liberal voting record in the Senate that people forget. Um, I think she's a little too interested in military solutions, quote unquote, that turn out not to be solutions. Um, and that 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 troubles me a lot. I think she plays she plays by the current rules of politics that involve raising lots of money and making alliances, you know, corporate alliances and all that sort of thing. And I think she's just hung out to dry in a way that is unrealistic. There are women who say they will vote for a woman because she's a woman. There are men who say they will never vote for a woman for president, even if she is qualified. Do you know if these groups even out? Um, maybe they're married to each other. That would be fun. <laughs> um, I think there may be women who wouldn't vote for a woman either. I, mean, I think most of those women are in the Republican Party and men are in the Republican Party. But you see the, the kind of vitriol that is visited on Hillary Clinton, for example, on Twitter by men um, and some women is truly extraordinary. Um, and what you know, I just hope, you know, if you think Bernie Sanders is the best candidate, fine. But when and if he loses the nomination and this is also true, loses the primary and this is also true for people who support Hillary Clinton. We have got to come together and vote for whoever the Democratic candidate is. Because if you watch those Republican debates, they, they are really crazy. And each one is more reactionary than the one before. And this is a very critical moment in American and indeed world history. Katha Pollack, columnist for The Nation magazine. She also wrote the introduction to the new book from The Nation, Who is Hillary Clinton? Two Decades of Answers from the Left. Katha, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. 
For another way of answering the question, who is Hillary Clinton, we turn to Gary Young. Of course, he's an award-winning editor-at-large for The Guardian and also a columnist for The Nation. And he's author of the book, The Speech, The Story Behind Martin Luther King's Dream. Gary Young, you know a lot about Hillary's history as a candidate, which goes back to, uh, I guess, 1978 when Bill was first elected governor of Arkansas. That was something like 38 years ago. She's had a very long life in politics. The question is, can she really be true to her past since she's changed so much and, and since America has changed so much? Yeah, I I feel that Hillary has a very particular appeal and has she's had to ride this wave of how America has understood women, women in politics, feminism in general, uh, uh, marriages in general, and then, you know, the issues of, you know, in, in her own life. And so it's kind of interesting even that you would say, you know, when she was... Um, a candidate, because in in seventy eight, when Bill couldn't start standing uh, as a as a, uh, a governor in Arkansas, she couldn't really, as a as a woman, be a candidate in in Arkansas because the patriarchy of of politics would would have kind of uh, would have made that very uh, difficult. And when he stood in seventy eight, she insisted on keeping her own name, meaning her maiden name, Hillary Rodham. And then when Bill lost his re-election, she was told, you know what, one of the reasons that he lost that is because people were very suspicious of why you kept your maiden name. And so she changed her name and became known as Hillary Rodham Clinton. And then he won again. And then, you, you know, you fast forward to 1992 and you see some of these interviews with her in which, you know, she's described as this kind of, as though she's landed from outer space, as though Eleanor Roosevelt never happened. And it's like, meet the candidate's wife. She has views. She has opinions. She has a job. She's a liability. And frankly, all she has to do in order to scare these people straight is to exist and think and talk. I was in Britain um, at the time. I would have been 23. But that's when I first saw her and I thought, God, she's a real badass. You know, she was like, look, I'm not, you know, I could have stayed home and baked cookies, but I decided uh, not to. When she's, you know, quizzed about the state of her marriage, she says, you know, if you don't like it, heck, don't vote for him. We're a team. We work together. He was running for president, but she was auditioning for this kind of 19th century job as first lady. But it should be said, by that time, it's uh, 1992, uh, she says she's not going to bake cookies. That goes down very badly. She ends up winning a cookie baking competition <laughs> against Barbara Bush and Ross Perot's wife. Chocolate chip was her uh, great recipe. And by the time she stands for New York Senate in 2000, she's Hillary Clinton. So the transition from Hillary Rodham, Hillary Rodham Clinton, Hillary Clinton is complete. And it's interesting, actually, that by this time, by now, she's just Hillary. Oh. We know who she is. No second name necessary. I mean, she's had a path that no man of her age, of her intelligence, 
with political ambition would have had, which is that much of her political life has been as his wife, a woman in her own right, for sure. But it's not like she was appointed to run the healthcare uh, transition because she was brilliant, because she was, she was his wife and was brilliant. And so, um, you know, when she says something like, well, there was Hillary care before Obamacare, there is a, there is a kind of slight, well, you know, are you claiming your husband's record? You know, feminists have been debating whether it's fair to uh, judge Hillary by her husband's deeds. Michelle Alexander, who's the author of the book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, has the cover story in The Nation magazine this week. It's titled, Why Hillary Clinton Doesn't Deserve the Black Vote. She talks on her Facebook page about, quote, how much damage the Clintons have done, the millions of families that were destroyed the last time they were in the White House, thanks to their boastful embrace of the mass incarceration machine and their total capitulation to the right-wing narrative on race, crime, welfare, and taxes, close quote. Do you think it's fair to uh, judge uh, Hillary uh, according to that record? I do, actually. I do because she claims, Hillary claims her husband's record. She talks about, you know, we lifted people out of poverty. Um, We got the economy going again. Um, And so if one, and, you know, she jokingly says, you know, I've, um, you know, I won't need a tour of the White House. So there is, uh, if I'm elected, so there is, um, she evokes, and invokes his presidency as part of her campaign. If that weren't enough, her husband, ex-president Bill Clinton, is her chief and primary advisor. She was on, you know, his board. It's the Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea Foundation. It's just not feasible to separate them, given the rhetoric that she uses. She could do it another way. It's not like that's inevitable, but if that's what she's going to do, then one has to say, okay, well, look, we're in this moment of Black Lives Matter and talking about uh, incarceration of African Americans. That happened exponentially under your husband's presidency. Welfare reform under your husband's presidency. Defensive Marriage Act, which effectively uh, made uh, marriage on a federal level uh, an exclusively heterosexual institution. That happened on Hanson's presidency. Ricky Ray Rector, the mentally disabled uh, African-American who was due to be executed at his last meal, Ricky Ray Rector left the dessert for later. It's not just that the state of Arkansas executed him, but that Bill Clinton returned to Arkansas in order to oversee it because he didn't want to be really Horton, and he said, nobody's going to say I'm soft on crime. Now, those were things that he um, must take responsibility for, but if she is going to claim his legacy from Arkansas and the White House, then, then some of that dirt brushes off on her. She can't have it both ways. And then 
Then, of course, she got elected to the Senate from New York in 2000, and then she ran for president in 2008. Then she serves as Secretary of State for four years. And for young voters, there's that that's probably the only Hillary they know. That's 15 years of, of Hillary in politics. And if you're 25 or 30 years old, that's that's your entire conscious life. What what does that Hillary mean to, to young voters? Well, it, I mean, that, this is the thing I find most fascinating, is that... Um there's a section of uh, of voters out there, and I'm thinking specifically of uh, female voters, but not exclusively, who don't know the badass Hillary, and actually would struggle to understand why, you know, having seen Michelle Obama now, you know, n- not understood that th- that trail was blamed. And so just to know Hillary as though she, you know, is just this kind of older pole, and who they see as part of the establishment, and frankly, in those jobs, you know, didn't do terribly, although, as was a problem for her in um, 2000, did vote for the war in Iraq, which is still a liability, and they they don't see her as breaking any mold or having broken any mold. They actually see her as part of the mold, and for people who want radical change, she doesn't look like radical change. It's also true that in the years since Clinton Bilkin was elected president in 1992, there's been a threefold increase in the number of female senators. When he was elected, there had been no female secretary of state since uh, in between then and when Hillary became secretary of state, there were two, uh, Madeleine Albright and Condoleezza Rice, who of course was African-American. So, in the period in which she's in the public eye, America's understanding of what makes a trailblazing woman changes. And so these women grow up in the same way that my son, who's African-American, will grow up and think, may think, yeah, okay, so there's a, there's a black guy running for president. So what? Well, you know, if you're around in 2008, it was a very big deal. Speaking to those young women, a lot of them, they think she's untrustworthy. They think she is part of the problem, not part of the solution. And frankly, they find it quite difficult to relate to her politically. Gary Young, he wrote about the seven ages of Hillary Clinton for The Guardian. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Now it's time to talk with Joshua Oppenheimer, the documentary filmmaker twice nominated for an Oscar. Here are some facts. While the American public was preoccupied with fighting communists in Vietnam, in 1965 and 66, the American government supported a military coup in Indonesia that led to a genocide where one million people were killed. The perpetrators said the people they had killed were communists, which was true maybe for a few. And the United States government supported the perpetrators. The people responsible for the genocide are still in power in Indonesia. And in Joshua Oppenheimer's first film, The Act of Killing, many of the killers are happy to reenact their crimes for his camera. Those reenactments in The Act of Killing made that documentary a uniquely horrifying one It was nominated for an Oscar in 2013, won many other awards, and earned Joshua Oppenheimer a MacArthur Genius Grant. 
Now he has a new documentary out. It's called The Look of Silence. It's also about the Indonesian genocide, but it's not a sequel. It's something different, a, a companion film. And it's been nominated for the Oscar for Best Documentary this year. The new film, The Look of Silence, switches the focus from the perpetrators to the survivors. The central character is an optometrist named Adi, whose brother was a prominent victim of the genocide because of the exceptionally violent nature of his death. Adi offers free eye tests to the men who murdered his brother, and during the eye tests, he talks to them about the killings. Joshua Oppenheimer, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Well, I want to start by asking you about Adi, this amazing person. How did you find him? Uh, how did you get him to agree to do this film? And where did you get the idea of Adi confronting the killers? Well, I knew Adi since the very beginning of my exploration of the terrible ongoing legacy of the 1965 genocide. In fact, I had been, uh, when I first started this work, I was introduced to Adi's family because Adi's brother, who was killed, Romley, his, his murder was the one murder in that region which had witnesses. Tens of thousands of people had been taken to the nearby Snake River and killed, and their families never told what happened, which meant that people couldn't mourn. They couldn't grieve openly. They couldn't work through or heal in any way or move on because they didn't have evidence that their loved ones had been killed. They would just they couldn't give up the hope they might one day return. But they could talk about Romley, Adi's brother, because there were witnesses, because there was a body. And over the decades, I think uh, Romley became a kind of synonym for the genocide as a whole, because it was a way of expressing some of that grief people couldn't express when thinking of their own loss. And so I was it was sort of inevitable that I'd be introduced to Adi's parents, Romley's parents, and then they wanted me right away to meet Adi, saying that he was virtually a reincarnation of their murdered son. That They said, if you want to understand what we lost, uh, you must meet Adi. He looks like him, talks like Romley, acts like Romley. And they called him to the village. And Adi was born after the killings and desperate to understand what had happened to his family, to his village, to his country, to make everything as it was. People were too afraid even to tell him what happened. And so... Adi started gathering survivors with real passion to tell their stories to me. But after three weeks, this is all in early 2003, the army threatened the survivors not to participate in the film. Adi responded by calling me to a midnight meeting in his parents' home. I arrived and found not just Adi and his family, but all of the survivors he'd gathered waiting for me, looking at me expectantly. And they said, you've... Uh, if you cannot film us, do not give up. Try to film the perpetrators. And I, I thought that sounded dangerous, frightening, but I overcame my fear, did it. And they approached the first perpetrators and found they were boastful and open. Adi and the other survivors said, you must continue to film the perpetrators because if anyone sees this boasting, you will have successfully exposed a whole regime of impunity and fear. You'll have shown essentially that the genocide hasn't ended because the perpetrators are still in power and millions of lives are still being destroyed and diminished by fear. I then spent the next seven years building an ever-larger Indonesian team of human rights activists, filmmakers, survivors to make the act of killing, knowing all the while I would try and return and make a second film about what it's like for survivors to live surrounded by the still powerful men who murdered their loved ones.
part of the story you document includes showing your footage to, to Adi and to other people in your film. Tell us about that. All the while that I was shooting the act of killing, Adi would watch everything we had time to show him. He would come every, every evening to our, the house where we were living and based while shooting the film and ask to see the footage. When I returned to make the look of silence, Adi said, I've spent seven years watching your footage with the perpetrators. It's changed me. I need to confront the men who killed my brother. I immediately said, absolutely not. It's too dangerous. There's never before been a film where survivors confront perpetrators who still are in power. Adi then explained to me why this was so important uh, to him, and then we found a way of doing it safely, and, and we proceeded. What did Adi hope would happen at these meetings where he confronted the men who killed his brother? Well, this was, this was exactly what Adi explained. He actually took out a camera that I'd given him to use as a kind of notebook to look for images that might inspire the second movie, and one tape that he hadn't sent me. He'd been sending me tapes while I was editing The Act of Killing, and he said, uh, I, have this, I never sent you this tape because it's very personal, but I want to show it to you now. And he showed me the one scene in the film, in The Look of Silence, that Adi shot himself, and it's a scene that comes very close to the end where his father's crawling through his own home in an advanced state of dementia, lost, thinking he's wandered into someone else's home and is going to be attacked. And Adi said that on this particular day, his dad was inconsolable. People could, no, he, he couldn't recognize or remember anyone in the family. They'd try and comfort him, and he would shriek with fear. And he said, I realized on this day that my dad had forgotten the son whose murder destroyed his life, but he hasn't forgotten the fear. Mm. And... Oh. And I and now he'll never work through the fear. It's it's now too late for him to heal because he can't remember what happened. We watched the scene play out, and then he said at the end, "I don't want my children to inherit this prison of fear from my father and my mother and from me. It's a prison that millions of survivors will die in, and I don't want that for my kids. And I owe it to them, as a father, to try and approach the men who killed my brother." and have been terrorizing our family, and say, look, if you can just admit what you've done was wrong, of course we can forgive and then live together as human beings, as neighbors, instead of as killer and victim afraid of each other. And that's in the end, uh, that's how Adi explained to me why he wanted to to meet the perpetrators and and to confront them. I understand that your films have been shown inside Indonesia. Tell us uh, how that happened and and what happened. Well, initially we were afraid when we first premiered The Act of Killing that if we just tried to release it in Indonesian cinemas, that would provoke a ban from the Indonesian uh, Film Censorship Board because the film exposes really uh, the some of the most powerful men in the country, the vice president of the country, army generals, governors, members of parliament, ministers in the cabinet. Uh, So what we did was we held closed screenings initially for Indonesia's leading news editors, and that prompted them to break their silence on the killings. The editor of Indonesia's leading news magazine called me the next day and said, you know, for, for, for decades I've been censoring stories about the genocide, he said, uh, and I won't do it anymore for as long as I've been in this job. And I won't do it because seeing your film, I don't want to grow old like your main character, Anwar Congo. I don't want to grow old as a perpetrator like him. And in response, we're going to break. And so I've decided to break my magazine silence on the genocide. 
And they did it, he did it in a very big way. He sent 60 journalists all over the country to look for boastful perpetrators, essentially to show that the act of killing was a, was a repeatable experiment, that you could have made it anywhere in the country. Wow. They gathered a 1,000 pages of boastful testimony in two weeks. Uh, they published 75 pages plus 25 pages about uh, the act of killing. And in one fell swoop, Indonesia's uh, media silence on the genocide ended. And since then, and that, that provided the cover for the, the screenings to become public. So uh, what started as these secret screenings became public. There were thousands of large public screenings of the act of killing before we put the film online for free for all Indonesians. That, that in that way, it's been seen tens of millions of times. And into the space opened by the act of killing has come the look of silence with a much wider more public release. Uh, the official distributor of the Look of Silence is the National Human Rights Commission. It's part of the Indonesian government, something that never could have happened with the act of killing. Um, the act of killing, in a way, was required to open the space to make that happen. And the, the Look of Silence, uh, its first screening was held in Indonesia's largest theater, a venue for about a 1,000 people. There were billboards around Jakarta announcing the event. 2,000 people turned up they put on a second screening so that everyone could see the film. Adi came as a surprise guest to the screening and uh, received his 15-minute standing ovation, trending on Twitter that day because it was coincidentally National Heroes Day and because Indonesia is the world's largest Twitter-using country, was today we have a new national hero and his name is Adi Rukun. Wow. Since then, the, the, the Look of Silence has also screened around 5,000 times larger screenings than the act of killing because there was never the secrecy around it. Uh, it's screened on every university campus and many, many in thousands of high schools. The army has at times hired thugs, paramilitary groups, to threaten to attack screenings and then use the threats as the basis for demanding that the screenings be canceled. Groups of students on, on campuses around Indonesia have barricaded themselves into their campus uh, to go ahead with screenings in defiance of the threat. So the film has has sort of opened this national dialogue about the about how torn the society is, how urgently truth, justice and reconciliation are needed and and naturally the army's not happy about it, but there's it feels sort of unstoppable at the moment. Well, we we salute you for these incredible achievements. Just want our listeners to know that Josh is Previous film, The Act of Killing, was voted one of the 20 greatest documentaries of all time in the first ever poll of critics and filmmakers by Sight and Sound magazine. It's the most prestigious such poll in the world. Joshua Oppenheimer, we've talked about this film and the Indonesians. The Americans are also part of this story. Uh, one, of, one of the perpetrators says to you on film, we did this for the Americans. Tell us about what's happening in America with this film. First of all, it's important to say that Americans have largely seen the film as a mirror in which they recognize impunity at home for all sorts of things, not just for the Indonesian genocide, for hundreds of crimes, atrocities that have brought us to where we are. And the Indonesian genocide, likewise, is not just Indonesian history, it is American history. And Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico watching the film decided that the documents detailing what America's role in the genocide actually was should be declassified. 
And he introduced a Senate resolution to that effect, saying that our rhetoric about human rights will correctly be seen as a hypocritical ruse for advancing American interests until we have the courage to acknowledge our own role in human rights violations everywhere in the world and, and also stop perpetrating, stop participating in human rights violations. We know that the United States provided weapons, money, even lists of thousands of names of public figures compiled by the U.S. Embassy and handed to the Indonesian Army with the message, go down these lists, check off the names as you go, that is to say, check off the names as you kill these people, and give the list back to us when you're done. But the real uh, crucial details of how much support was offered and whether that was a determinant of the outcome and whether the United States possibly even masterminded the whole thing, that remains secret. And uh, these these documents need to be declassified. You can go to the film's website, thelookofsilence.com, where you'll see a link, sign the petition, and you'll find a petition where you can urge your senators to support Senator Tom Udall's resolution so that it eventually passes into law. The film nominated for the Oscar for Best Documentary is The Look of Silence, the petition to release the documentation on the American role in the Indonesian genocide is at thelookofsilence.com. Joshua Oppenheimer, thanks so much for your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Each week, we bring you stock market outlooks, macroeconomic updates, and investment strategies that can help you succeed. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience about how they navigate uncertain markets. Prepare to be engaged, enlightened, and entertained by listening to the Capital Ideas podcast today.